and welcome to our new series on History Pop, where we're going to be talking about history, fictional, fictionalized, or otherwise. And we're starting in on a new series, which I'm really excited about, going to be talking about the medievalisms and slash or early modernisms and slash or what other period these films take place in of Disney. Please don't sue me. This is done with love and a modicum of respect. It's fun. It's all in good fun, Disney. Please don't sue me. Uh, anyway, so I just wanted to have a real talk situation before we jump into the podcast where we're going to be talking about uh, 1959's Sleeping Beauty, which is set in medieval, high medieval England, and so it's super fun. I love high medieval period. Uh, I'm more of a high and late medievalist if I'm going to be a medievalist at all, so this is totally my jam, super fun. Uh, and basically it's just a, a rant about what is great and what is not great about how history is presented in Sleeping Beauty, which is of course not a historical film by any means, but what can we glean about history, or at least our understandings, 1950s understandings of the medieval period from the film. And so those are the sorts of questions that I asked myself re-watching it for the first time in ages, and then this is the product. So you're welcome. And also thank you very much for listening. I also wanted to talk a little bit just about the scheduling of this podcast, because I have been actually keeping up with a weekly pace, which has been grueling but fun. But I don't know if I can keep it up. I missed this last week, so I'm really sorry about that. My grandmother passed away, actually. So that kind of threw a monkey wrench in my scheduling. And I've also kind of taken the time to reflect and realize that with writing my dissertation, writing the chapters that I've got on my belt, not my belt, <laughs> writing the chapters that I have on my plate, there we go, that's the right noun, Courtney, uh, as well as the job applications that I'm needing to put in and all this other stuff, I just don't have the bandwidth to be able to do this as a weekly thing. So we're going to try doing it as kind of a bi-weekly thing. We'll do the first and third Fridays of the month. So our scheduling going forward uh, after this one, because I'll post this on my regular Friday, is that we're going to be doing the first and third Fridays of the month because I like Fridays. Fridays is a day of fun day and this will hopefully give you something uh, fun to listen to going into your weekend or your commuter wherever you listen to this which I am really interested actually to hear how people are engaging with this work so throw me a tweet. I'm easy enough to find. I'm Courtney Herber on Twitter Courtney underscore Herber and uh, yeah so I have a very minimal but I'm trying to do more uh, social media presence so yeah hit me up throw me a tweet let me know how you're doing and what you're enjoying about this cast and what you want to hear more of. Uh, but yeah, so I am absolutely loving this and we are going to see how a first and third Friday schedule works for this. Hopefully it'll mean even better podcasts and more content that I can actually spend a lot more time researching on for you and being able to script out and have citations because citations are kind of a thing when you're a historian. <laughs> but anyway, thank you for listening to me ramble on and thank you so much for your continued uh, listening-age. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. So, without further ado, the medievalisms slash early modernisms slash whatever the hell time period this is of Disney. Now, there are no spoilers in history, but there will be in this podcast, although I'm assuming you've probably seen Sleeping Beauty or are familiar with the storyline by now. But anyway, if you're not, there will be spoilers. So stay tuned.
Hello and welcome back. So we are going to be doing something a bit different with this series. So we're going to be, I'm going to try to see if I can actually figure out to do this because I'm kind of wordy as y'all have figured out by now, but to focus on one particular Disney movie per cast and to try to keep that in a manageable amount of time because as much as it seems like y'all are interested in listening to me just ramble on, which is wonderful and great, and thank you. Really, thank you. Um, I don't think you want to sit here and listen to me chat for two hours like you know my students did when I would have to teach classes. So, <laughs> today we're going to be starting off with a movie that I had not seen since childhood. It's one of my, it was one of my least favorite Disney movies. And I think, you know, burgeoning little feminist uh, Courtney had issues with the fact that the protagonist is basically a prop. And if you watch Sleeping Beauty again, you'll realize that as well. And that's actually something that uh, really kind of, it, the fact that she's a prop didn't surprise me. But the characters and the personalities of all of the other characters was actually really interesting to me. And... I ended up enjoying it so much more than I thought I was going to. I was like, okay, well, this is going to be a great way to spend an afternoon being sick. We'll watch Sleeping Beauty. Because, you know, when you think about, at least for me, when I think about medieval history and Disney, that's the first one that comes to mind, is specifically Sleeping Beauty. Well, um, a lot of, oh, hi, kitty cat. A lot of the other, especially classic Disney movies, take place, obviously, in a historical period. Sleeping Beauty is the one that really hits home on the, this is medieval. I mean, they constantly say that this is the 14th century. It's super modern. So 1300s. But yeah, so we're going to be talking about Sleeping Beauty today. Uh, So I thought I would actually give a little bit of history of the actual story itself, which the earliest uh, publications of this story date back to 1528 with Purse Forest, which is a publication, obviously it's, it's French. Uh, this story is, for the most part, extremely French. La Belle à Bois Dormant, or The Beauty Who Sleeps. Um, the German, the, the Brothers Grimm, also do publish this as well, but theirs is the oral historical tradition rather than the literary one, which is what we get with uh, Charles Perrault. I believe that's actually how you say it. Something is calling me. But anyway, so Charles Perrault published his version of Purse Forest in 1697. So this is, it goes back a ways. And it's actually based off of Purse Forest, which I said is a medieval um, story that through traditions come to us. It was probably written around in the late uh, 14th century. So it actually is, the Disney does a pretty good job of setting it to when the historical basis of it was created. Um, and so the story itself, I'm actually just going to read the origination section on Sleeping Beauty from Wikipedia because I'm like, there's so many different versions of this story that you can get even just in the Bruden Grimm, uh, House and Kindermärchen, as well as the Charles Perrault story. So I'm just going to start us off with one baseline. And basically, so we have in Purse Forest, uh, a princess named Zeladine falls in love with a man named Trellis. Her father, 
sends Trollis to perform tasks to prove himself worthy of her, and while he's gone, Zelandine falls into an enchanted sleep. Trollis finds her and impregnates her in his sleep. That's a hell of a kiss to wake her up, which she actually doesn't wake up. She gives birth asleep. <laughs> And then her child then draws from her finger uh, because, the you know, the kid is a baby and it sucks on things because that's what babies do. And it sucks on her finger and it pulls out in its sucking the flax seed that was stuck underneath her nail that caused her to fall asleep. And then she realizes that uh, she was impregnated and gave birth to a child by Troilus because he left a ring for her. And then he comes back and marries her. Yay. This actually is also a lot, uh, there's a version of Rapunzel that's kind of like this as well, where she doesn't realize what's happening and gets impregnated and gives birth to children. Um, but yeah, so no, uh, in Don't Lucian, which is the uh, Brothers Grimm version of this, yeah, no, she uh, she's asleep. He comes and does his thing. And she wakes up to having a baby. That's one hell of a sleep. <laughs> and then it also says too that the second part of the Sleeping Beauty tale in which the princess and her children are almost put to death but are instead hidden may have been influenced by Genevieve of Varant. Uh, earlier influences come from the story of the Sleeping Brynhild in the Volsunga Saga uh, and tribulations of saintly female martyrs in early Christian hagiography conventions. Uh, but yeah, so kind of friggin' dark. Um, but so then, you're probably familiar then with the Peralt uh, Disney version of it, where we have a young princess who is blessed by fairies at her birth, except for one who was really grumpy at not being invited to this kind of christening sort of ceremony-ish thing. And because she wasn't invited, she had so many hurt feelings and decided to curse the baby to a hundred years of sleep when she pricked her finger on a spinning wheel. And so then the final fairy who hadn't actually, good fairy who hadn't given her blessing says that well she um i can't actually undo the magic that she did so i can say that instead of dying she's gonna she's gonna she's gonna sleep for 100 years it'll be fine uh so just 100 years and then in 100 years she's going to wake up with true love's kiss and so then to, as a kindness to everyone or as part of um the evil fairies spell everyone falls asleep in the kingdom so that way people aren't going to be sad that they don't have their princess anymore I don't know. Honestly, if this was actually legit medieval history, people would, the king and queen would just have another kid. Uh, <laughs> or they would work on having another kid. Or maybe adopting someone. I don't know. It works. Uh, yeah, actually, in Japanese culture, especially even in the medieval period, but even on through to today, it still happens where if you have a company or something you want to pass on and you only have daughters, if the, the man that they marry actually comes into your family rather than your daughter going into the husband's family. And so then you end up adopting your son-in-law and he becomes your heir. And so that actually could have totally been a thing as well. But they it's fairy tale world. That's not how that worked. And so then we have 100 years passing and we have a, a prince on a white horse who's like, oh, what's all of this stuff that's going on here? Why are all these people asleep? And he goes in and he kisses the princess because that's apparently what you do when you find a sleeping woman don't actually do that that's not nice and she wakes up 
and of course, you know, because he is the one she is fated to be with, they fall in love, and then the entire kingdom wakes up, yay, happily ever after, and so that's basically the, the gist of the story that Disney took and then adapted. They tried to give Aurora, who is the princess, a bit more of a role to play, I guess. They wanted to focus on the romance between her and Philip, and I really don't know if they succeeded or not. But, uh, so this film actually uh, had been in production since 1951. It wasn't released until 1959. Now, animation, of course, takes time, but it shouldn't have taken that long of time. Uh, basically, it got to the point where they had so many arguments over who should actually be the director, who should be running each of these particular scenes, who was in charge of the art direction, and there was so much infighting in this particular production that they just kept adding on time and time and time and time and time to until the point it took eight years to do this, which it should not have done. Oh, and don't mind me, I'm just going to be getting some more of my tea. Once again, if Harney and Sons would like to sponsor this podcast and just send me free tea, that would be great. I love me my uh, Tower of London. Yeah, my BFF, who you have, may have listened to in further uh, in past podcasts, Ryan sent me a whole pound of loose leaf Tower of London tea. And so I am very pleased. <laughs> but anyway, so we are in 1959 and working through getting this movie uh, actually filmed and not filmed. Well, actually, yes, partially filmed because they actually used live action uh, models for the creation of the animation, which was another point of contention between some of the animators and the directors of the animation because one of them was like, uh, that's a crutch. We don't need to do that. Animators should know how people move. And other people were like, no, we, we need to have these uh, live actions references to be able to go off of to make sure that they are as fluid and elegant as we can make them. So there was a lot of infighting between uh, the different departments in the making of this particular film. And that led to it being delayed and delayed and delayed. And it's interesting because when you're watching it, it doesn't feel like it was the product of so much arguing. Uh, which is good. It's, it's the mark of professionals to be able to actually make that work. But so in the animated film, in the 1959 Disney version of it, we start off with a beautiful illuminated book. Well, illuminated is in air quotes here. Um, and starting off with that, actually that reminded me a lot of uh, like the Winnie the Pooh movies because you started off with uh, the, the storybook opening up and it draws the viewer in. And especially with something like this, I think having the book opening up into the, the story itself lends an air of authenticity and because these big books, you know, you're supposed to take these things seriously in these, you know, it gives them kind of this gravitas and, like I said, this authenticity. And so we start off with this air of the fact that this feels historical already because of the type of illustrations that are in these books. And so the uh, art directors, when they were creating the movie itself, were kind of stuck between an actual, like, medieval inspiration and an art deco inspiration and you can see both of those fighting in the costumes actually uh, but so the medieval actually side comes from the fact that one of the directors of animation when he was 
looking for references for this, he actually saw at, uh, I think it was one of the museums in New York City. There's a lot of them, and I haven't been, and I really need to. Uh, <laughs> um, maybe the cloisters, I'm not sure which. But um, there were some really important medieval tapestries that had been on a touring exhibition, the the captured unicorn. And if you think of, honestly, a unicorn in a pen, you've probably seen this particular imagery in uh, other books. If, you, if you've seen anything that's medieval, that's honestly a quintessential idea of what we would term as medieval art uh, today. And so if you're not familiar so much with medieval art, that's probably one that you actually are familiar with. And if you're not, look it up. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's a series of tapestries that tell the story of this poor unicorn that gets captured. Uh, and yeah, so it gives a little bit of the mythology of unicorns as well. It's a, uh, it's actually in France right now, if I'm remembering correctly. I actually did read a book on these a while ago. But anyway, <laughs> and so he saw those and he was like, we need to do something like this. And so uh, borrowing a lot of those visual tropes from the medieval tapestries, we do get a lot of that in the story as well. And so we could see that from the opening scenes with the book opening up and uh, moving then into the painted backgrounds. And so we have very medieval-ish sort of, or at least a 1950s understanding of medieval-ish uh, into the backgrounds. So we start off the story with the book opening up and saying, yay, the, this kingdom had been trying so hard for an heir, and they got this daughter. Her name was Aurora. And so we start off with a song of Hail to the Princess Aurora. And I love this because that is totally not what would happen. <laughs> Especially not in the 1300s. Uh, the fact that they had a daughter would be great. And they would have probably been like, yay. I mean, this it reminds me so much of... Uh, Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, where, you know, eventually they did have, you know, because Catherine had a lot of miscarriages and stillbirths and children who didn't survive for very long after they were born. But finally, and she, you know, they, they started trying right away after their marriage in 1509. They had a baby who was uh, born in 1510 that died. And then I think it was 1511 when they finally had a Prince Henry and he survived for 52 days. Um... And, and then eventually they had Princess Mary, who actually just survived, and eventually she became queen uh, in 1553. And to comfort Catherine, Henry said that, you know, we have a healthy daughter now, sons will follow. And so that would have been the idea, too, that the king who in uh, this particular kingdom, which is not named, but is most likely England, uh, King Stephen, and his wife, who is, as far as I could tell, was not named, but in the Wikipedia says Leia for some reason. Or Leah, Lee, I'm not sure which. I'm going to go with Leia because that makes me think of Space Mom. And so Stefan and Leia would probably give themselves comfort that, okay, cool, we can have kids. This is great. Now we're going to have a son. And they're probably wouldn't have been the whole kingdom's celebrations coming out. There would have been, you know, bonfires and the church bells would have been rung and there would have been celebrations, but it would not have been a, yay, we finally have an heir because no one at that time was saying that girls could be heirs to the throne. They, you know, it's a possibility 
possibility, but most likely not going to happen. The last time that that had happened was uh, it led to a war called a civil war called the Anarchy, and uh, it was only because Matilda's brother had died that she actually was the heir, and then her cousin. Stefan actually stole the throne. So I'm like, is that actually what they're referencing? The anarchy and Matilda? No. Uh, it's just they, I, I'm sure that they just randomly made up these names or found them. And I thought it was really interesting. Um, and so we have the whole kingdom coming out to say, yay, we're so glad that Princess Aurora is our princess and she's beautiful and we love her. She's a baby. Come on. And... So then just like in the actual story, we have the good fairies who come out and they give her blessings. And then we have the bad fairy who comes out and says that she's going to die on her 16th birthday. And that's another thing that I absolutely loved about this version of it that I didn't as a kid is how awesome Maleficent is. Like, Aurora is a prop. She's there. She moves the story along. Yay, she's a contrivance of the plot. But... The other surrounding characters are amazing. And Maleficent is just this deliciously evil character. And I hope we can all uh, aspire to loving our jobs as much as she does. Whatever those jobs may be. If it is doing evil, perhaps maybe not. Uh, But, you know, anything else that we are doing with our lives, I hope that we can all aspire to the level of dedication and passion that Maleficent has for her job. (laughs) She revels in it, and it's glorious. Um, But anyway, and so we have uh, her come in, make her dramatic entrance. She's going to die, blah, blah, blah. And I love this because actually the the medievalisms obviously don't come in the story itself. They come in the background details, in the costuming, in the buildings that are painted as the backgrounds, in the tapestries on the wall. And they did a good job of making them look like medieval enough for someone who is not a medievalist uh, to, to show that they were medieval inspired. But these actually aren't accurate representations. And... Like the, uh, it's interesting to me, like the use of heraldry and we have the, uh, we actually do have the English lions that show up quite a bit, uh, in some of the tapestries that are on the walls. But that's another thing too, is if you actually look at the backgrounds, especially in those great hall scenes, the tapestries are there as decoration and tapestries would have been used as decoration, but there were not nearly enough of them on the walls because tapestries, castles, are drafty. Castles typically aren't going to have like glass windows. You might have like wooden shutters that close things, uh, but glass is really uber expensive, which is why you only have it in like churches and sometimes castles as well, definitely. But generally you're not going to have that, especially in this time period. And so castles are cold. Castles are, well, they're cold in the winter and they're hot in the summer. And Tapestries are one way that you can use to actually help um, keep things at a decent temperature and because they can you know, help plug up some of those holes in the drafty construction. Uh, and they also are great for sound muffling so that way everything's not going to echo because when you have stone floors, stone walls, sometimes wooden ceilings, but also sometimes stone ceilings, everything is going to echo. There's going to be a lot of bouncing of sound. And so tapestries help to deaden that. And so there's not nearly enough tapestries on the walls in this place. Um, And 
I love the use of uh, address as well. And so, like, uh, you know, Maleficent is called Your Excellency. And I'm like, wait, what? The queen calls Maleficent Your Excellency? This is an interesting uh, hierarchical statement there. <laughs> um, and, yeah. And so it's interesting, too. So then we have the, the opening scene with the Aurora being a baby. And then eventually the fairies figure out, okay, well, we need to take her away. We need to hide her and keep her safe. And that way Maleficent's not going to be, you know, finding a way to make sure that she's with a spinning, uh, spinning wheel on her 16th birthday. I was going to say spindle because sp different version, spindle, spinning wheel. We're good. And I also love this too because just a critique of the actual fairy tale itself. But I'm like, really, King Stefan? You're going to banish all spinning wheels from the kingdom for the next 16 years. What is that going to do to your wool industry? That, especially if this is set in England, which it looks like it is based off of the heraldry and the, um, and the landscape. It looks like a very English sort of idealized countryside. And... <laughs> England's main export at this point in time is wool. And you need a spinning wheel to make the threads for tapestries. And England also actually had a, a really strong tapestry making industry as well. And so it's just like, you're just completely saying, screw you peasants, screw you artisans. My daughter, who, you know, for some reason, I'm not even going to try for any more heirs, is much more important than the whole wool industry. And it's just like, okay, sure. That's how you know this is a fairy tale, because that would never actually happen. <laughs> there probably just wouldn't be any spinning wheels inside the castle, and she would have been kept in there. But anyway... And so then the three fairies take Aurora and they raise her as Briar Rose in the forest. And that's actually a nice touch uh, that adds to the nods to the original fairy tales and the sources for them. Because in the German, Dornwüschen, uh, she actually, that's what the name can translate to, is Briar Rose. And so she's called Aurora and Briar Rose, which is a nod to both the French and the German uh, origins of this tale, that, how, of how it comes down to us. And, you know, she is just turning 16 is when we see her next. You know, we don't see her grow up in the little cabin in the woods. But it's obvious that the fairies, who are amazing as well. Like, uh, I especially love Meriwether. She is such a little grump, and I adore her to bits. Uh, honestly, I, yeah, I was talking with Ryan about this, uh, you know, just chatty, 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 typey, 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 chatty, chatty, chat, and telling him that, honestly, this, they could have just cut Aurora out of this, and it would have been a great movie. Like, Philip and the Fairies, I would watch that. <laughs> and, um, and so, Briar Rose is out, uh, talking with her animal friends in the forest, and, you know, as you do, she's a Disney princess, that's what they do, and Philip is riding through town because he is, uh, supposed to be attending his father uh, because they're going to be announcing his engagement, his betrothal to the princess of this kingdom, to Princess Aurora. And he meets Briar Rose slash Aurora in the forest. And of course they fall in love because that's what you do. But, uh, and I love this too because Philip actually has character. He is a Disney prince with character, which you didn't get from the first ones because uh, the first two Disney princess films, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and Cinderella, both of the princes, neither of them have a name. 
Philip is the first Disney prince to actually have a name. And he also is the first really to have a stock of character, which is fun. And, uh, and actually also, fun historical fact, Philip is named Philip because he was named after the Duke of Edinburgh or Queen Elizabeth's husband. So that's cool. Uh, maybe that's why he has such a character, because Philip is also a character. Watch the crown. It's great. <laughs> and so we have uh, another sort of medievalist-ish uh, tradition that comes down looking at the fairy's cottage. And that's another thing, too, talking about, like, the glass and the windows. And, like, this is not a cottage for poor people in the forest. They have glass in them, their windows. Um, it's also really big for a family of four at this particular point in time. Uh, I also thought it was interesting that they are cooking inside. It would have made more sense, especially with the weather being great, to cook outside. Um, but that's fine. It's cool. Whatever. We'll take it. And, um, what's fun is also that some of the jokes that come out are so not tone deaf in terms of the history, but they kind of are. Um, there's one that, uh, Fauna, when she is, cause she wants to cook Aurora's birthday cake. Each of the fairies wants to give a gift to Aurora for her 16th birthday, but they want it to be out of character for them, uh, that they're really working on. And, uh, uh, Fauna, who's not really apparently a very good cook, decides that she wants to make the cake. And Flora decides that she wants to make the dress, but she doesn't know how to sew. And Meriwether's just like, well, what am I supposed to do? And they're like, clean the house. <laughs> I love Meriwether. And she's like, fine, I'm going to use my magic and I'm going to clean the house. Um, but the dress and the cake, of course, are a disaster because uh, Flora has no idea how to read a pattern, which would not have been a thing at this particular point in time either. Uh, having books of recipes for cakes also not so much a thing. Um, I mean, obviously cookbooks have existed for centuries upon centuries, but most likely not so much existing in a fairy's cottage in the 1300s. Just gonna leave that one there. Uh, but no, so one of the main jokes that actually comes out reminds me a lot of... <laughs> Reminds me a lot of my mom. And uh, so Fauna, when she's cooking, she's like, okay, I need to add a tisp of this. What is a tisp? And it's a teaspoon. And so that joke, if you know anything about the history, doesn't make any sense. And it's, it's adorable joke. And my mom does that all the time. She's like, I need to add a tisp of this and a tibs of that. Um, and, but the joke doesn't work because at this particular point in time, there's no such thing as tea in England. So why would you need a teaspoon? Tea actually uh, is much more in terms of like the Elizabethan period is when we really get that. So that's going to be in the late 16th century. And there's a siren. I'm sorry. It's from the curses of living downtown. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the, the, the tea joke doesn't work at all. Uh, because, I mean, it's adorable. It works for a modernist perspective, especially if you have no idea about when tea actually does come to England. But tea comes to England. So we have, you know, like, uh, it's more of a late Elizabethan thing-ish. But it really comes to popularity after the marriage of Charles II and Catherine of Braganza in 1662. So that's the late 17th century. So we have, you know, 
300 years difference here. Oh, now my kitty is awake. Hi there, little one. I know. Um, but anyway, and so, so that's one of those things, too, that kind of jars you out of your suspension or disbelief a little bit. Uh, and also the costuming as well. So when we have... Uh, like the more like sort of court ceremonial dress that we have Aurora in the the gown that um, the fairies make her that is obviously very medievalish inspired although there would have been no way for it to be off the shoulder like that that not so much of a fashion at that particular point in time um, and especially her dress as Briar Rose in the forest well it's a super cute little dress that's very much 1950s fashion I mean, she's got, is that a Peter Pan collar? I think it's a Peter Pan collar. <laughs> and, you know, she's got a, like a slip or an underskirt going on there now, which would have made sense because they had, you know, layers of uh, skirts and dresses that they would wear underneath the gowns. But we don't have necessarily like lace. I mean, lace, obviously, yes, did exist. It was a thing, but... As even though she was a princess, she was living as a peasant in a cottage, and so she would not have had lace. The costumes of the fairies in the cottage make a lot more sense as peasanty sort of costumes, uh, and those actually do lend a little bit more of the historical authenticity, a historical authentic feel that we get uh, from that particular life. And honestly, just looking at the collars in general in this movie. Very historically inaccurate. Although I actually really like Philip's costume. Philip is great. I, I just, I just, I adore Philip. I think he's really awesome. And uh, yeah, there's basically nothing about Philip that I don't like. <laughs> also, Aurora's wearing, a, sorry, Briar Rose is wearing a headband. Very much not a thing in the medieval period. You might have a ribbon that you tie in your hair. And the fact that they do have her hair down is great. Because uh, young women would wear their hair down until they got married. And then it would be all pinned up. And um, which is also we see with like the, the headscarves with the fairies in their peasant garb as well. You know, we don't really see a lot of their hair. And that makes a lot of sense. Because as matronly sort of women at this particular point in time they wouldn't have shown their hair. And Aurora having her hair done, now her hair, of course, would be a lot longer because uh, she probably would not have cut it very often or at all. And um, she wouldn't have styled it that way. I mean, it is gorgeous in the animation. It flows beautifully. I and mean, that's another thing, too. You can't fault the animation for this. Even though it took forever, it turned out well. And the kitty is having his breakfast right now, a very late breakfast. <laughs> um and anyway, and then, so then we have, uh, you know, she's talking to her animal friends. It's her birthday. She's like, yay, life is grand, except oh, I have a stranger that I meet in my dreams. Oh. And um, and then Philip actually shows up because he's out riding around on his own, which also totally would not very much have been a thing. Um, if he is a crown prince of a kingdom, he's going to have at least a couple people with him. To make sure he's protected because even though they're in uh allied territory and friendly territory you're still gonna have people around you that's how you you know you're royal it's what you do you have people and i mean i'm sure that he could have given them the slip and stuff like that as well but there's no indication that he actually would have had an entourage which is historically very inaccurate but he meets her and he dances with her and is just generally charming and clever and amazing. And 
And also, too, that's another thing thinking about this is the use of nature in the storytelling to kind of give you that idealized past feeling. Because that's something that it, it strikes me as well that you see in a lot of films where you're trying to show that, you know, this is a historical past and that it was sometimes, you know, depending on how you're portraying it, but better than where you're at right now, you know, this harkening back, this nostalgia sort of feeling. And you get that with the harmony with nature in a lot of ways. And, you know, nature is not something to struggle against in this movie. There's food aplenty. The The weather is gorgeous, except for when Maleficent makes it not that way. Um, the animals, we don't have any animals eating any other animals or any sort of fear that Briar Rose is going to be eaten by foxes or a wolf or something. And so we have this harmony with nature that is really indicative of these films that are set in a historical idealized past. And Sleeping Beauty is no different. Just like, um, actually in the next one I'm going to be talking about as well, it's interesting that we do have a corrupted nature and past but that is uh something to talk about when we talk about brave um and so also too when uh flora is making aurora's dress she sews on the sleeves no i I mean depending on which style we're going with yes sleeves were sewn onto gowns but in general not so much um basically you have your uh undergarments which is just like a a shift basically which is a usually white linen um or undyed linen or some other cloth that is kept closest to your skin and then you have uh bits of outer dresses on top of that and so you're gonna have like the skirt you're gonna have the bodice you're gonna have the sleeves you can have all of these things that are separate pieces that you tie on uh because you don't have zippers uh you have ways of tying, but you don't really use buttons. I mean, you can. I don't actually don't know if buttons were this, a thing at this point in time. I'm sure they were. I'm sure buttons were a thing. But they were for extremely rich people. But so you have a lot of tying on of things. And so sleeves are difficult as well. Because, like, what if you are, you know, in winter and you need to have thicker undergarments on. And then you have to put your dress that has the sleeves already attached. And they don't fit because you have so much more bulk underneath. So sleeves are a thing that that was just like, that just, it's just, it's interesting that what details actually got me with this. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm just looking at my notes about this as well. And also trying to figure out where uh hubert and philip are from it feels much more continental and more germanic to me with the double-headed eagle uh as their symbol because we have the english golden lions of course for uh stefan and then we have the the black double-headed eagle for the heraldry for hubert and also hubert is much more of a germanic name at this particular point in time especially and so i'm like when is this? Is this like, you know, like mirroring the marriage between like Anne of Bohemia and uh, Richard II? Like it, it, I mean, that makes sense. That's the last time that they had like a very, and in this particular century as well, we have a Germanic uh, princess who marries into the English royal family. I'm like, hmm, 
I mean, flip the genders, but yeah, you get what I'm saying. But so I'm like, I was just trying to figure out, like, where is Hubert from? But that's my guess. My guess is uh, Holy Roman Empire. And um, anyway, so I love the relationship also between Stefan and Hubert, um, just drinking together. And that's another thing, too, the fact that they're drinking wine. Now, you might be thinking that that's actually historically inaccurate, but it's not. Um, England in the medieval period was actually just Europe in general in the medieval period, I think actually kind of the Atlantic world as well, I'm not sure, uh, was going through a warming period. And so you actually could grow grapes in England and England made, produced, and sold English wine. And apparently it was crap. (laughs) Everybody still wanted like the Italian or the French wines, especially the French wines. Uh, Aquitaine was really uh, well known for its wines and its grapes. And, um, but yeah, they actually could have been drinking English wine at this particular point in time. And then once we get to the early modern period, we get into what is now known as the Little Ice Age. And that's when we actually get like frost fairs with the Thames being frozen over and actually having like a party set up on the River Thames. Uh, so it's really interesting. But uh, so at this particular point in time, though, when the movie is set, we are in the middle of the medieval warming period. And so we have all of these things that we see set at the table for this celebration that's going to announce the betrothal of Philip and Aurora. And all of these things, I'm like, okay, first off, I have no idea what half of these foods are. But then again, that also could be a very 50s thing because 50s food looks weird. I mean, basically, you just take something that could be edible and then put it in a gelatin mold for some reason. I don't know why. I need to study the 50s more. <laughs> but they did that and it's weird. And... uh But so we have a lot of these dishes that are set up. And so they actually do have the scene with the bard. I'm assuming that's who this is, is the bard because he's carrying a lute around. And uh, the two kings getting drunk off their asses. And it's highly entertaining. Uh, But most likely they were actually drinking English wine. And and so then once we actually then uh, get done with that, and then Aurora is back at home, and then she... Uh, is enticed by Maleficent, you know, magically and pricks her finger on the spinning wheel and then falls asleep. And then uh, Philip is outside of the castle at this particular point in time because he's actually thinking he's going to go and meet Briar Rose at her cottage and is captured by Maleficent. And so then he's put into a dungeon. And I'm like, okay, cool, this makes sense. Although I'm also wondering too, how is Maleficent's castle structurally sound? Like, how is this thing still standing up? If you watch the film, just look at it. You're like, how? I don't understand. But then again, we also do have a lot of uh, medieval ruins today. And I think that's probably where they got their inspiration from, is medieval ruins. Um, But at the same time, it wasn't like an army of goons and an evil fairy queen living in the medieval ruins that we see now. So maybe she's keeping it up with magic. She has magic. It's a thing. (laughs) Um... And then we have Philip riding in and saving the day and the end of the fairy tale. Um, Also, too, actually thinking back in terms of the costuming, the queen, Leia, her costuming is actually super on point. Uh, Looking at her costume, I'm like, and I love looking at like the crowd scenes. There's one lady who literally looks like she just has a bucket on her head. 
as a hat. And I'm like, what? What is this? What is this even? I don't know. I actually have in my notes, TF hat is that at 54.48. Also looking like, why are there ostrich feathers in some of these hats? And I'm like, no, that that's not how this worked. Ostrich feathers came uh, once we actually started exploring past Europe and was much more in the later early modern period once we actually like start having trade with places that have ostriches. England doesn't have ostriches. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, but anyway, and so then... Uh, we end the story then with the prince waking up the princess and everybody's happy because, oh, look at that. Philip actually did fall in love with the princess he was supposed to marry anyway. Yay. And um, I wonder who's going to inherit which kingdom. I don't know. Um, and so then we have celebratory fireworks, which again also does not come to England until much later because fireworks were invented in China. And in the 1300s, England does not have an extensive trade network with China. Just, just again, spoiler alert, um, that comes a bit later. And so we have a lot of these touches that make sense to a uh, 20th and 21st century viewpoint. Of course you celebrate this sort of thing with fireworks, but they didn't exist in England at this point in time. And and so we have these things that if you have this, uh, even just a little bit of the historical knowledge, it just jars you out of the story. You're like, wait, that didn't happen that way. Um, and that also happened ex actually at the very end as well, once we have, and it's an adorable scene. And apparently it was actually one that was originally storyboarded and partially animated for Cinderella. But then they just were like, well, that got cut from Cinderella, so we needed to put it somewhere, so they put it in Sleeping Beauty, where at the very end, we have Philip and Aurora dancing among the clouds. And uh, so that particular visual was created for Cinderella, but then reused in Sleeping Beauty. And then, of course, we have uh, Meriwether and Flora, who are fighting over uh, what color the dress should be with their magic. And it's adorable. But... Um, but if you listen to the song, it's a, it's a three, four time. And so it's one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. It's a waltz. As far as I know, the waltz, which is a very German sort of dance and music, was not a thing in 1300s England. And so that's, it's a beautiful ending, but I'm like, no, why a waltz? Why? Why? <laughs> and so, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now. I had a couple of questions that I wanted to think about, like, you know, what does the film say about its historical past? Um, and we get a lot of that actually with Philip and talking about how, you know, this is the uh, 14th century, you know, we are modern. And I love that sentiment, actually, because to them, living in the 14th century in the 1300s, it was modern. They were at the peak of technology and culture for them at the time, just like we are right now. And so I really appreciated that. And one of the things, too, that while it's a very idealized, medievalized past, it's not made fun of. The 
people at the time, at least the characters who are not fairies or magical in their own way, are not used as the butt of any sort of jokes because of that, because of the, you know, where they were in history. They're treated just as fully-fledged characters, just like they would be if they were in a drama today. And I really appreciated that, because a lot of times when we're looking back at these historical people, we feel superior. And that's something that I struggled a lot with with my students in class is the fact that, you know, well, how did they believe in that? That's so stupid. I'm like, well, there's a lot of things that we believe in right now that when you look back, even in 20 years, 10 years, you're going to be like, wow, that was really stupid on my part. And it's just the benefit of hindsight, which they did, they had, and they probably thought that people in their past were really stupid. And how did they believe in that? That's so silly. Um, and so that's actually one of the things that I really did appreciate was the sensitivity that Disney had for making sure that we took the characters, except for Aurora, because she's a prop, but seriously as characters and made their world feel more lived in and more authentic to them. Um, what does the film show about its historical past? And I think we covered that quite a bit where we have you know the harmony with nature we have the costuming we have the background which is going to be things that i'm going to be keeping an eye on for the rest in this particular series um what are the cultural understandings that come from the history in this film and i think that that's going to be something that i want you to really be thinking about what is it that you know of course this isn't telling you an actual historical story but what do you learn about history by having a story set in an actual historical past? What lessons is it telling you about this particular period and why? What does it gain from telling you this story in this way? And what does it say about the culture of its present? And what I mean by that is, it, there's a school of thought um, that it's, it's more interdisciplinary, uh, but in English, they have a lot of like literary theory where you read things, you know, from a feminist bent or from a Marxist bent or all sorts of other different lenses as well. And one of the ones that I actually use more in terms of my work, because I do a mix of literary and history, is new historicism and basically looking at new historicism says that you have you can't just look at the work in and of itself you know because a lot of people would just take shakespeare and read shakespeare's play in isolation from other of his plays or other contemporary plays or without even looking at the historical context in which it was written and that's one of the things that uh, comes out of new historicism is that you have to look at the historical context in which these works were created because a lot of times these works will say a lot about the modern present in which that work was created and so you know shakespeare is writing about current events but just doing it through the lens of you know a faraway place or a historical past just like Sleeping Beauty is making statements about its current present moment by using a fairy tale and historical past to tell that particular story. And so what does Sleeping Beauty say about life in the 1950s? Well, it says that we do have women who are powerful. And so we have like these tropes then of, you know, like 
the movers and shakers in this story are women. They are all of them what they would have been termed, I suppose, at the time, spinster or maiden aunts. They are all unmarried. Uh, and so we have this sort of reverence and fear of these women as well in the characters of the fairies. And we, of course, do have the very strong and vivacious character of Philip as well. And, you know, he is demonstrating the struggle of youth to be able to make sure that his generation's mindset is taken seriously and that he should be able to marry whomever he wants, which also would not have been a thing in the 1300s, especially for an aristocratic, a gentry, or a royal marriage. It would have just been like, here you go. This is what you got. You're marrying this one over here and you're going to make kids. It's going to be great because marriage was a business transaction, not something for love. And so the fact that we have this uh, such a strong theme coming through, especially from Philip, uh, is an interesting statement that is coming from that very 1950s mindset. And so I think that that's also incredibly interesting. So when you think about, you know, what's going on when this film is being made, which is basically the whole of the decade of the 50s, and looking at the cultural shifts and the trends there, you can see bits of the 50s in this film. And so that's another thing, too, that I think is really interesting when you are uh, looking at a work that's set in a historical past is how much does this work actually say about its present because I think it actually says even more about its present than it does about the past that it's trying to explain. And I think we're going to end on that uh, for today. Uh, yep, so we're going to be at about 45 minutes to an hour with this one. So that's, yay, that's pretty good timing. <laughs> so anyway, thank you so much for joining me for Sleeping Beauty. And next time, we are going to be talking about Brief. Uh, which is actually, I think, my very favorite uh, Pixar film, of course. And uh, Merida, I think, is actually my very favorite Disney princess. She's really great. Um, and so we'll be talking about Brave next time. So thank you so much and stay tuned. And I look forward to talking about uh, more Disney and medievalisms with you. And uh, stay tuned, take care, and I'll see you soon. Bye. been written and performed by Courtney Herbert. Intro and outro music written and performed by Jonathan Colton and used under a Creative Commons license.